My plaid away, my plaid away, and o'er the hill and far away, and far away to Norway, my plaid shall not be blown away. Child Ballad Number Two, The Elfin Knight. Chapter One. When Daisy Orr was six, she began to avoid the cracks in the pavement. It started as an unusual attentiveness to paving slabs, a reluctance to walk over cobblestones, and evolved into a complex series of skips and jumps and diversions designed to carry her safely across the many pavements of London. Children are ritualistic. Their lives are filled with ancient lore. Step on a crack, break your mother's back, acquires a grim significance for a child who has just lost her father. But six is a resilient age. While her mother struggled with grief, Daisy was coming to terms with death in a way she could control. The pavement game was Daisy's way of making sense of the irrational. This, at least, was what her mother believed. Later she came to reassess her reading of the pavement game. But by then it was too late, and she herself had slipped through a crack into a world without Daisy. There should be a word, Faye Orr tells herself, for a woman who loses a child. A woman who loses a husband can at least put a name to her loss. She is a widow. Her grief has a name. That name gives her a narrative. But this is a different kind of grief. She is a woman who has lost a child. She was a mother. Now she is not. Now she does not know who she is. Now she is adrift, alone. Nameless, she casts no shadow. Who am I? She asks herself. What am I doing in this world? It all seems very wrong, and there is no one here to tell her what to do. She has tried counselling. It doesn't work. Words and affirmations have no meaning anymore. How are you feeling this morning, Faye? She wants to say something. Really, she does. But the question is meaningless. What is there to feel? Daisy is gone. Her daughter is gone. In her place, there is nothing. Why don't we look at your diary, Faye? Ah, yes, she thinks. The diary. It's supposed to help her counsellor whose name is Janine and who thinks that Faye would benefit from sharing her thoughts, understand how she fills her days. Faye would like to explain to Janine that she has no thoughts. She is only a mechanism, going through the meaningless rituals over and over every day. You're keeping fit. That's good, Faye. Janine is a great believer in the healing properties of exercise as if tighter calves or more defined abdominals might help her reach an epiphany. Faye knows better. The running has become a compulsion. Kings crossed to Trafalgar Square without stepping on a single crack. Euston Road to Regent's Park without thinking of Daisy. The thing is, Daisy is everywhere. Daisy at three. Daisy at six. Daisy dead at 21. 
stolen away by the shadowless man. Children look to their parents to tell them monsters don't exist. But what if they do? Faye asks herself. What if the monsters were here all along, but only Daisy saw them? This is excellent progress, Faye. Any more dreams? She shakes her head. There are no dreams she wants to share. Dreams are how this all began. Besides, there's only one dream that counts. She has it almost every night. She dreams she could have saved Daisy somehow, that she could have known what was happening. It's not your fault, Janine repeats. There's nothing else you could have done. Daisy was suffering from a neurological disorder. She was off her medication. There was no way you could have known. But that isn't true. There have always been ways. Secret ways to see the world through dreams and charms and mysteries. Daisy believed in the power of dreams, though Faye dismissed her fantasies. And now, every night, Faye dreams that she arrived in time to save her. That instead of those 24 hours she spent in ignorance, watching TV, going to the gym, sitting in the garden and listening to the sound of the birds, she had somehow instinctively known. That instead of reading an email, she had guessed by osmosis. And now there is no way to banish the thought. Daisy fell through the pavement cracks. I wasn't there to save her. And so she runs. She runs through the pain. When she can no longer run, she walks until she can run again. The pain is like a dark cloud that shows no sign of lifting. People are no more than shadows here. Only the cracks in the pavement are real. Sometimes Faye wonders whether it is she who has slipped through the world somehow. She feels she has become as flat and blank as a piece of paper, trapped between the pages of a continuous narrative in which Daisy's death replays over and over, like a fragment of dialogue that no longer has any meaning. Once she might have turned to music to console herself. Music has been at the heart of Faye's life. Music, singing and the stage. It was her husband's life as well. He was a concert pianist. But Alan Orr is as dead as an empty stage in the moonlight and Daisy is a silent ghost that music cannot exercise. And so Faye runs, always at night, along the towpath from King's Cross, or along Euston Road into the West End, Shaftesbury Avenue, Leicester Square, Piccadilly Circus. She likes to run in the small hours, when there is no one else around but the homeless people. Barely visible by day, at night, when the theatres and pubs are closed, when the last tube home has gone, they come out into the light of the bright shop windows. And there they sit, drinking and smoking on the tiled floors by the department stores, wrapped in blankets and bedclothes like children up late on Christmas Eve. Faye feels no urge to speak to them, and yet she feels a kinship. 
they too have slipped through the cracks. They too cast no shadow. She has no destination in mind. She has no sense of time passing. She feels no sense of achievement at having run so far, so fast. The best she can possibly hope for, she knows, is the oblivion of exhaustion. And so she runs with her backpack through the broad, bare London streets, in her running shoes that do not match her leggings or her T-shirt. Runs past the displays of jewellery, of toys and household objects, feet pounding the pavement slabs, running as if from a predator. And yet, there is something different tonight. Something in the air, perhaps. She remembers that it is Michaelmas, the end of the harvest season. Even the city knows it somehow, in its ancient forest heart. The shadows will lengthen after this. The city will swing into darkness. The leaves are already falling fast. There is a change in the sound of the wind. And tonight the sky is cold and clear, with the full moon standing sentinel. There are no stars in London. The city is too bright for their pure, cold light to compete. But the moon is full for the second time this month, and larger than she remembers. They call that a blue moon, she tells herself. She does not recall how she knows this. The blue moon rises above Shaftesbury Avenue, luminous as a jellyfish. She moves to get a better view, and as she does, her foot catches on something. Only on looking down does she realise that the paving stone on which she is standing is cracked right down the middle. For a moment she is still, looking down at the paving stone. It must be a trick of the moonlight, but in that moment it looks as if the stone is illuminated from below, as if there is a crack in the world through which a light is shining. She does not know for how long she stands, pinned by that mysterious light. But it is in that time, seconds or hours she does not know, that Faye slips through the crack in the worlds into another story. <laughs>